Grab your Bibles with me and stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. It's on this Easter Sunday, as Pastor Bruce preaches from Romans chapter 8, we'll be reading verses 31 through 39. As he concludes this series on the gospel, what the gospel can do for us, we're looking at God's everlasting love from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, but who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word and we thank you for that truth. The truth that you sent your Son to die on the cross for us and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Open our hearts and minds to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This Easter, the defining moment in all of history, the day that Jesus defeated death on the cross and resurrected from the grave three days later. Let me tell you, it makes a difference. And that's why I'm so glad that you are here this morning as we talk about our risen Savior, as we look to God in heaven for the answers of life in His Son, Jesus Christ. As Zach read for us here in Romans 8, Paul starts out with this question. If God is for us, who then can be against us? But maybe you're here this morning and you're not quite sure of that answer. You're still a little questioning it. You're not sure if God is really for you. And so I want to begin this morning with that question in mind. Coming up on the screen, you're welcome to take notes or follow along. There's a bulletin insert. Uh, in your bulletin you can pull out, and that is, how can I know that God is for me? I ask this question because, you know, today there are many people who really do think that God is against them, that God is not for them, that God even opposes them, in fact, that God even hates them. In fact, one reason why people think this is because they look at their life and they think, man, it just hasn't gone as I expected. In fact, life stinks for them. It's filled with heartache. It's filled with pain and suffering. It's one trial after another, and, and it seems like nothing goes right for them. And so based on unmet expectations and difficult circumstances, these people think there's, there's no way God can be for me. Just look at my life. This past Sunday morning, my wife's dad passed away, and she got a phone call from her sister Donna at 3.30 in the morning that her dad was on the verge of dying. 
So she immediately gets out of bed, gets dressed as fast as she can, gets into her car, and begins to rush over to her sister's house where her dad and mom live. Of course, on the way there, to make matters worse, she, she hits a deer that totals her car. Does that mean God is not for my wife? Some people would think so based on those circumstances. The passing of a father, an accident of hitting a deer, life stinks. God, you can't be for me. But the opposite is true. Some people think, well, God is for me because their life is so good right now. Their job is good, their marriage is good, the kids are good, their health is good, their friends are good. I mean, everything is good. And so they think, hey, God is for me. Just look at my life. But the problem with both kinds of thinking is that the God who gives is also the God who takes away. As Job reminds us in the Old Testament, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of God. Of the Lord. So I ask again, how can we know? How can we be sure this morning that God is for us? How can I know that God is on my side? And the answer is what we're celebrating today, Easter Sunday. Easter, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is God's proof that He is for you. Easter is God's ultimate proof that He loves you personally and powerfully regardless of your circumstances in life. Listen, God sent His Son to die on the cross for you. That is personal. God doesn't just love the human race globally. God loves you personally. And when you give your life to Christ, the real meaning of your story, no matter what you've done in the past, is God's love for you. And then, God raised His Son from the grave for you. Listen, that's powerful. God's love is not a weak love that's ineffective or incapable of of changing your life. No, if you are in Christ, then nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. God's love is powerful, and there is no match for that love. And so this morning, God wants you to embrace His love by embracing His Son, Jesus Christ, as your own. Have you ever seen those graduation pictures, like the one coming up on the screen right now? This picture on the screen is a a picture of the graduates of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs when they, they stood in that moment and threw their caps into the air. This picture captured those caps, thousands of them, when they were at the height of their toss, and you can see the caps suspended in the air, and you can see the smiles on the faces of some of these graduates. What a beautiful picture of enthusiasm and joy in the promise of life ahead of them, and in the same way, if you could just grasp God's love for you at the cross, You would throw your hat in the air. You would toss it in the air. You would shout and you would dance when you understand how much God loves you. Let me show you from God's Word here for a few minutes, right here in Romans chapter 8, just how much God is really for you, how much He loves you. Number one, we see that God gave up His Son for me. God gave up His Son for you. Look what Paul writes here in verse 32 of Romans 8. 
It says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. Now, where did God give up His Son for you? At the cross. And what happened at the cross? God the Father gave up His Son. When everything was on the line, all our sin was poured out upon the Son who hung on the cross in our place. And God did not rescue Him. Instead, God forsook Him. Why? Jesus wasn't saved so that we could be saved. That's why. That's what happened on the cross. God gave up His only begotten Son for us. I want to show you another picture coming up on the screen, a picture of a, of a painting by Salvador Dali called The Christ of St. John of the Cross. And when Dali first presented the painting in the summer of 1951, critics panned it as an artistic digression. But today it is considered a masterpiece and one of the best-loved works of art in Europe. Now the genius of this painting, according to critics, is that Dali painted the crucifixion as seen from above. And so the effect of this angle is that the viewer must take the crucifixion from a God's eye perspective. And so looking upon the downcast head and the outstretched arms of the crucified Christ, you kind of perceive it all as a heavenly spectator, as one who is watching the Son of God die alone against a darkened sky suspended between heaven and earth. And I think this image is, is helpful for us as you gaze upon this image, as we contemplate what it means that God is for us. Because it pictures that God, He gave up His Son for us. God the Father delivered His own, his own Son to be betrayed, abandoned, mocked, flogged and beaten, spit upon, nailed to a cross, and pierced with the sword like an animal to be butchered. And we wonder, why would God do that for us? Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And in verse 21, Paul tells us, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so in that moment, when God gave up His Son, in that moment of pain and agony and defeat, Jesus, He literally took upon Himself all of the violence and suffering and the sin of the world, and He absorbed it into His own broken body and disarmed it forever through His obedient death. And if you are looking for proof here this morning that God is on your side, you need to look no further than the crucifixion of the Son of God. The Father gave up His Son for us. Unthinkable, unimaginable. In fact, we have heard this so often that sometimes it no longer staggers us that this actually happened in history. Octavius Winslow, one of the great preachers of the 19th century, asked, who killed Jesus? Who killed him? It wasn't Judas out of greed. It wasn't the Jews out of envy. It was his father out of love. The father killed him. It was the father who put him to death. Why? Why would God do that to his own son? God did this for our sake so that we could be saved from our sins and be reconciled to God in peace. Some of you may remember the, 
Gilad Shalit prisoner exchange back in 2011 between Israel and Palestine. Actually, Hamas Palestinian, the terrorist group. Gilad was a 19-year-old young man living in northern Israel at the time, conscripted in compulsory service in the Israeli army. And he was assigned to the northern part of Israel, very near the Gaza Strip. Actually, he was guarding along the fence that separates Israel from the Gaza Strip. And on June 25, 2006, he was guarding one night. Palestinian commandos tunneled underneath the fence, opened fire on his unit, killed several Israeli soldiers, and before anyone knew it happened, they grabbed this 19-year-old young soldier who didn't know what was going on, pulled him under the fence, and disappeared. And for five years, the Israeli government tried to get back Gilead Shalit. They bombed the Gaza Strip. They forced greater pressure upon them. They sent in their intelligence experts. Nothing could be done to find and rescued Gilead Shalit. Five years he suffered as a captive until October 18, 2011. He wasn't rescued. Rather, he was exchanged. And you know how prisoner exchanges work, right? There's a prisoner that you have, and you have one of your own people, and so we release this prisoner, and you release your prisoner, who you really want back, and you know, you've seen the movies where they cross this bridge, and step by step they go across, and one for one, and there's a trade, there's an exchange. But that's not what happened. Gilead Shalit, now a 24-year-old captive, was exchanged, get this, for 1,027 Palestinian prisoners languishing in Israeli jails, most of whom sentenced to life in prison. Collectively, these 1,027 Palestinian prisoners and even terrorists were responsible for the deaths of over 500 Israeli civilians. And yet, to get one 24-year-old Gilead Shalit out of Palestinian captivity, the Israeli government gave up 1,027 convicted Palestinian criminals and terrorists. That, in fact, is the largest prisoner exchange agreement Israel has ever made the highest price Israel has ever paid for one single soldier. Now, perhaps you're sitting there like I was when I read this story. Why? What's up with that? What were they thinking? Why would they do this? But it has to do with a principle that is deeply embedded in Jewish culture called Padan Shuvium, which is translated the redemption of captives. This principle basically says this. Our people are so important to us that we will do anything to get them back. The worth of one prisoner is so high, we will go to any lengths to get them back. So where does that Jewish principle of the redemption of captives come from? You go all the way back in your Bibles to the Old Testament. You go all the way back to God's people being set free from captivity after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. If you watched the Ten Commandments last night, Charleston Heston, that's what we're going back to here. But it goes even further back than that. It goes 
to Abraham going after his nephew Lot and his family who are captured by five invading kings. And Abraham, with 138 men, goes after this overwhelming force and brings Lot and his family back. But it actually goes even further back than that, all the way back to the foundation of the world where we learn that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so before there was history, before creation, the Father and the Son and the Spirit basically agreed to something like this. We're going to create a perfect world. We're going to create people in our own image, and they will rebel, and it will cost not 1,027 prisoners to give up, to buy them back. It will cost the life of God's Son to buy them back. Folks, that is what God has done for you. How much is God for you? Listen, how much does God love you? God gave up his son for you. Why did God do that? Well, on one level, it was the only way to get us back, to buy us back, to save us from the bondage of our own sins. But it goes farther because God gave up His Son to assure us, number two, that God will never give you up. That God will never give me up. Just think about this with me for a moment. What God gave up for you was so precious that God basically said, I want you to see what I am willing to give to buy you back to save you from your sins and reconcile you to myself. And I want you to know that I will never give you up once I bring you back. Let me tell you, I need to be reminded of that. I need to know that in the place of my failures, in the place of my guilt, in my shame, in the place of my past, in the place of my sins, God still loves me. Let's be honest, in those places we all ask, how can God still love me? And we wonder, man, how far will God go with me? And at what point might God say, that's it, you've gone too far in your life. The deal's off, I'm out of here. Will God ever say that to us? No, God will never give you up, and he will never give up on you. God is rich in love, and he does not limit his love for you. God says, look what I gave up to bring you back, and ask yourself, am I ever going to give up on you now? That's what Paul's asking here in Romans 8, verse 32, when he says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You say, well, all right, that's cool. So what are those things? What are these all things that God will freely give us? Well, all things are not everything that we want in life or even need in life to make us what we think happy in life. All things is anything God uses to get us from where we are now to where God has promised we will be forever with Christ, like Christ, in heaven. In other words, God will go to whatever lengths is necessary to complete what He's begun. To finish the work of salvation that he started in your life and in mine in order to bring us 
all the way home to glory for eternity in heaven. In fact, Paul is so confident of this that God will never give up his own children that he asks four questions emphasizing the unlimited, unconquerable love of God in Christ Jesus. Notice the first question he asks. Hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul, notice, he doesn't simply ask who can be against us, does he? After all, we see a lot of things and a lot of people who are against us in this world. Our past is against us. The devil is against us. The world is against us. And let's be honest, even our own flesh is against us. And we, if we try to go up against all that that is against us, thinking this time, man, I'll just try harder. I just need to try a little harder to live for Christ. Man, we're kidding ourselves. So Paul doesn't ask simply who is against us. No, he asks it this way, if God is for us, or if really since God is for us, then who can be against us? And that makes a huge difference. You see, the God who is never defeated by evil, but always uses evil for our good, the God who is sovereign over all things and all people, this God, that God, is the one who is for us. Listen, God is not neutral about you. He's not waiting to see how things turn out and how you perform. God is for you. We are often confused. We're sinful and defeated, but God is at work in our lives using all things to make us like Christ. And if you are in Christ this morning, listen, you could put your name right here in this first question. God is for Bruce. God is for Bill. God is for Sarah. Put your own name there. Second question, Paul asks, who can accuse us before God? What if someone accuses us before God? Can anyone bring a charge against us and make it stick? Satan comes and testifies against us in the court of heaven. God, get rid of him. He's a sinner. God, did you, did you see what she did last night? Who is there who can bring a charge against us before God and make it stick? And Paul's answer to that question is no one. Not even Satan himself. Why? Because it is God who justifies. In other words, that word justify simply means it is God who declares me righteous and not guilty. How? How could God do that? He does it by crediting our sins to his son and his son's righteousness to us through our faith in his son Jesus Christ. So if God has justified us, who then in the world is going to win a case against us? And Paul is basically saying, listen, no one. No one's going to win that case. God is the supreme judge of the universe. And because it is God who justifies us, no one can de-justify us. There is no supreme court above God to reverse his verdict. So who can accuse us before God successfully? No one can, because through our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, God justifies us. He declares me righteous while I'm still a sinner and declares me not guilty even though I am guilty of my sins. And He can do that because Jesus Christ has already paid for the penalty of my sins with His death on the cross. And now His righteousness covers me. 
And so when God sees me, he doesn't see me as his sinner. He sees me as righteous as Christ. He sees me as his son and his daughter. Third question Paul asks, who can condemn us? You know, in this world, there are many people who condemn us, isn't there? Our friends sometimes condemn us and pass rumors about us. When we fail, even family will sometimes rise up to condemn us. And of course, the devil wants us to feel condemned. I mean, after all, for him, a good day is dragging us down into despair over our failures and our sins. Even our own hearts within us condemn us. Whispering to us that people like us, we have no right to enjoy God's love. And the only right is to live under the cloud of our sins, under the condemnation of our sins. But in Christ Jesus, God gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us the forgiveness of sins. And when God pardons our sin, let me tell you, He considers the case closed in our favor. Not because God has lowered his holy standards, but because the justice of his law has now been satisfied for us on the cross with his son's death. As Paul says in verse 34, who is he who condemns? And notice what he says. It is Christ who died. And then you've got to love the next phrase. And furthermore, he is also what? Risen who is even at the right hand of God at this very moment. And what is he doing at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us. In other words, when Jesus died, he paid the price for your sin completely and forever. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated Satan once and for all. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he now sits at the right hand of God and he is praying for us. So Paul now asks, hey, who in the world can condemn you now? And the answer is no one can. Why? Because Jesus' work on the cross is finished. There's no more work for Jesus to do. It's all been done. So why would we try to do it ourselves? Why would we try to work for ourselves to attain a relationship with God, to reconcile ourselves to God and earn favor with Him and be at peace with Him? Listen, we don't have it within us to do it. As Paul says, there is none righteous. We're all sinners. But thankfully, Christ did it. Christ is the righteous one who satisfied the law. He's the one who died in my place and in your place on the cross. The work is finished, and now he is risen. He's alive today. Therefore, your moral failure and my moral failure can't keep us from God when we turn to Jesus in faith. God's whole point is to embrace moral failures like us who turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. This is why Paul declares in the very first verse of Romans 8, there is therefore now what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow! How awesome is that? But Paul doesn't stop there. He asks one more question. And that question is, who can separate us from God's love? Paul looks around and he sees what we see. He sees all the enemies of our happiness in Christ. And he asks, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is no one or nothing can separate us from God's love. Those God love, loves, he loves forever. 
Those God saves, he saves forever. And so Paul throws out some possibilities that some people out there might think can actually separate us from God's love. He asks, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, pearl, sword? Now you just think about those words. That's a realistic assessment of life, isn't it? Stress, opposition, unmet needs, danger, violence, all those things are true. That is life for many Christians, folks, all over the world today. And Paul does not deny that reality. He does not minimize it. In fact, in verse 36, Paul quotes from Psalm 44 to actually remind us how brutal life can be for God's people when he says, for your sake we are killed all day long. And that for your sake is referring to God's sake, living for God. And so for your sake, Lord, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. The world, Paul is saying, what he's saying basically here, he's describing the world as one vast slaughterhouse for those in Christ. What a perspective. It's not pretty, is it? But it does match the facts because God's people do suffer, don't they? And God's people cannot always make sense of that suffering and explain that suffering. But Paul comes to us in the midst of that suffering and he says, listen, don't you give up your hope in God. Nothing can separate you from his love. God's love is personal. God's love is powerful. And that makes all the difference in the world. And this is why Paul writes now in verse 37, yet in all these things, what things? Those things that we just talked about. Those things of suffering and tribulation and trials and violence and anger. You name it. In all those things, Paul says, we who are in Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And so this morning, Easter, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, listen, that guarantees the outcome of that which it achieved. And you say, what did it achieve? Not the mere possibility of our salvation, no way, but the certainty of it. So nothing can ever separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul is so convinced of this truth that he concludes this whole chapter on Romans 8 with ten forces that fell to sever us from God's love in verses 38 and 39 when he says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to do what? Separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow, toss your hat into the air on that one, right? There's nothing on earth that can separate us from God's love. Now, I do need to point out something here. Because if I failed to point this out, I wouldn't be honest standing before you. I would not be true to God's word. And I think, hopefully, your expectation of any pastor who preaches God's word is to be honest, is to be true. To what it says. And so I need to point out a very important qualifier here. Paul says nothing can separate 
us from God's love. But who is the us? The us, folks, refers to those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, listen to me, this promise applies to believers in Jesus Christ. This is not a general statement describing everyone in the world that God has ever created. Only those who know Jesus through saving faith can claim the promise that Paul is giving us here. That we will never be separated from God's love. And so I end this, I I plead with you, how then should we respond to this kind of love? God's personal and powerful love for us. Because God, listen, He gave up His Son for us on the cross. Why? To assure us that He will never give up on us as His children. So what's the response? What's the application of all this? In essence, what we're asking is, here as millions of people all over the world celebrate this day, the greatest day in church history, the greatest day in human history, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, what does it mean? What's the big deal? You've got to ask yourself that. What difference does this day make in my life? Or do I just come and worship on Easter Sunday, go back to my life, live it the way I've always lived it, and hope I make it. You can come back next Easter and hear another message about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And leave and go home and think, hope I make it. Folks, we, get, we, ought, we need to ask ourselves, what difference does this make? Does the resurrection have any impact on my life? God's unfailing love, his personal love, his powerful love. What's the application? And it is so simple. Notice this here in your notes. The response to God's love is to give up. Give up what? Give up yourself to God and enjoy his loving purpose for your life. Let me say it a little differently here. God surrendered his son to assure us that he'll never ever surrender us who have surrendered to him. You say, well, what does it mean then to give up or to surrender yourself to God? Listen, it involves an attitude of brokenness over our sins and even ourselves. And it involves a reliance, a total reliance on God alone to save you. One author and speaker, Nancy Lay DeMoss, describes it this way, and I quote her words out of her book. She says, The brokenness to which God calls us is a lifestyle of agreeing with God about the true condition of my heart and life as God sees it. It's a lifestyle of unconditional surrender of my will to God's will. It's a heart attitude that says, Yes, Lord. So let me ask you, what will you say to God's love here this morning? Will you say, yes, Lord? Will you give your life to God? Will you come to Him in brokenness over your sin and receive His forgiveness, receive His righteousness that is offered in God's Son, Jesus Christ? 
Paul later on is in the same book, book of Romans, tells us in the 10th chapter in verses 9 and 10, and this is in your notes if you want to look at it, look what he says. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, declared righteous, declared not guilty. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So again, I ask, what will you say to God's personal and powerful love in your life? Paul said, I am persuaded. I'm convinced that nothing in the world can separate the people of God from the love of God. And what was the basis of such confidence that Paul had? Well, it wasn't some sentimental optimism. It wasn't just, I hope so. No, it was based on the cross of Jesus Christ. No one can ever doubt the greatness of God's love when they look to the cross. It proves the love of God. The cross is where God gave up his son for us to assure us that he will never give up those who give themselves up to him. What about you? Are you persuaded? If so, then respond. Respond here this morning by giving up yourself to God's love in Jesus Christ. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Here at Glenwood, this is the time when we set aside a few minutes to give opportunity for us to respond to God to respond to his word, what has been said, what has been sung throughout the service. And we want to do that here this morning. We want to give each and every one an opportunity to respond. We're not asking you to stand. We're not asking you to even get out of your seat and come forward. We're right where you're at. We're asking you to respond. God is. God has an invitation for you to his great love. And so with your head still bowed, the praise team's going to sing. And as they do, maybe God is speaking to you right now. And you know, man, listen, I, I know within my heart I'm not, I haven't responded yet to God's love. I have yet to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his, what he did, what he accomplished for me on the cross. But I want to. Man, I hear what you're saying. I hear the words of God in the Bible. I am persuaded. I know that I need my sins forgiven. I know that Jesus is the only one that can save me, and I cannot save myself. Listen, if that's you, then right where you are, cry out to God in prayer. Ask him to save you. Ask him to forgive you. In fact, if you're ready to respond, you could use some of the words that are right there at the bottom of your bulletin, your insert to express your heart's desire where it says, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and that you are the Savior who died in my place and then rose again. I confess that you are the Lord and I want to respond to you right now by surrendering my life to you. I receive you by faith. Please forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and make me into the person that pleases you. Amen. Boy, you could, just, you could put that in your own words and pray to God. Lord, we come to you this morning and we thank you. Oh, how we thank you for your personal 
and powerful love demonstrated at the cross and resurrection. Lord, we ask that you would work right now in this moment. By your spirit and your word, you would draw people to yourself. And Lord, may people confess you as their Lord and their Savior. May they know your love in a personal way by receiving your Son, Jesus Christ, through faith in him. As the praise team sings, will you respond? Will you embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Right where you're sitting.